0: From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Alina Seluch. This hour, we have the latest from our reporters on the ground in Ukraine and in Israel. Plus, survivors from the Hawaiian town of Lahaina are still struggling after the deadly August wildfire. Then, a big break in treaty schizophrenia. Why won't private insurers cover it? later some unconventional ways to make use of your drying christmas tree and a new bucket list item for you pure jazz drumming magic of new orleans legend herlin riley it's saturday december 30th 2023 the news is next
1: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Search operations are ongoing in Poland for evidence of a suspected Russian rocket that apparently violated Polish airspace. Poland is consulting with NATO and its allies about what to do. And Terry Schultz reports from Bustles that the White House National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, has pledged to provide U.S. support and technical assistance to Warsaw.
2: NATO
3: Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said he spoke with Polish President Andrzej Duda after what is believed to have been a Russian missile flew some 25 miles into Polish airspace. Duda convened an emergency meeting of his National Security Council to discuss the incident, which occurred during a barrage of missiles and drones Russia fired at Ukraine. Stoltenberg said NATO is monitoring the situation and will remain in contact as the facts are established. The Polish foreign ministry summoned the Russian chargé d'affaires and demanded an explanation, warning him Moscow should not create such a provocation again. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels.
1: Western nations, including the U.S., are denouncing Russia for that barrage of air attacks in Ukraine that killed at least 30 civilians. They condemned the attacks during a meeting of the U.N. Security Council. The attacks are described as Russia's biggest aerial attacks of the war. With intense gun battles being reported in the southern Gaza city of Kanyunas, the U.N. is again warning that humanitarian aid entering Gaza remains inadequate. Juliet Tuma, the director of communications for the U.N. aid agency known as UNRWA in Gaza, told the BBC that the needs are widespread. The siege, the bombardment, 80-plus days, this is impacting everyone. At least 80 percent
4: of the population depend on UNRWA and other humanitarian organizations for humanitarian assistance. That includes food and shelter it includes water and it includes very basic things like hygiene material and items.
1: According to UN Daily reports, too few trucks carrying food, medicine and other supplies are making it into Gaza. The backlog of immigration cases in the U.S. at an all-time high. That's according to new data from Syracuse University. Texas Public Radio's Gage Davila reports while the number of immigration judges has increased, each one has
5: around 4,500 cases to rule on. There are about 3 million pending immigration cases right now in the U.S., an increase of a million from a year ago. Syracuse University's Transactional Record Access Clearinghouse, or TRAC, found that immigration cases rose sharply during former President Trump's time in office. The trend continued into the Biden administration. September 2022 saw cases start to increase by the hundreds of thousands quarterly. Though there are nearly 700 immigration judges in the U.S., they have each been able to close only around 1,000 cases over the past fiscal year. TRACK says that hasn't been enough to address the volume of incoming cases. I'm Gage Davila in McAllen, Texas. And this is NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A New York man is facing additional charges from a fatal Christmas night car crash in Massachusetts after a third victim died. Police say Adam Gothier was drunk and driving the wrong way on Route 6 in Somerset when he crashed head on into a car in Veterans Memorial Bridge. The crash killed a 15 year old boy and his 73 year old grandfather who was driving the vehicle. The Bristol County District Attorney's Office says a third person in that car, the 68 year old wife of the grandfather, died yesterday. Two other people in a third car suffered minor injuries. Two New York City men have been arrested on visa fraud charges. The U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts says the two suspects in their 30s staged armed robberies of at least four convenience and liquor stores in Massachusetts. The alleged scheme would allow the clerks to claim they were victims of violent crimes on visa applications. and allow them to appear to help law enforcement with the investigations, and that boosted their chances of getting their applications approved. Both men face up to five years in prison and a fine of $250,000. Medical issues increased at hospitals after they were acquired by private equity firms. That's according to a study published this week by researchers at Harvard and Mass General Hospital. The survey found conditions such as falls and trauma increased 25% and blood infections increased more than 30%. Dr. Sneha Cannon is a clinical fellow at Mass General and helped author the study. Every single
7: condition has an increase In the private equity group, going down the entire table, every single condition showed an increase in private equity. There was no condition where private equity performed better relative to the matched control hospitals we looked at.
6: Cannon says the increase may stem from staffing reductions after hospitals are acquired and says more research is needed. It is 43 degrees in Boston, clouds around today, some showers and temperatures in the mid 40s. This
8: is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Alina Seluch in for Scott Simon. Good morning and thank you for joining us today. The race for the Republican presidential nominee got a little murky this week. Uh, Former President Donald Trump had both a victory and a defeat this week. And former South Carolina governor Nikki Haley, whose campaign was gaining some steam, dealt herself a very public blow. To hear more about it, we have NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving on the line. Good morning, Ron.
9: Good morning, Eileen.
0: So, Ron, things went sideways for Nikki Haley at a campaign event in New Hampshire this week. She was answering audience questions about the American Civil War. Tell us more about what happened.
9: A voter asked Haley what caused the Civil War at a campaign event. It was in Berlin, New Hampshire, on Wednesday.
10: Well, don't come with an easy question or anything. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do.
9: When the stunned voter raised the issue of slavery, here was Haley's response.
10: What do you want me to say about slavery?
9: Well, the backlash was immediate, and by Thursday, Haley, who blamed a Democratic plant for the question, seemed to remember more about the Civil War. Here she is at a town hall in North Conway, New
10: Hampshire.
8: Of course the Civil War was about slavery. We know that.
10: That's unquestioned. Always the case, we know the Civil
8: War was about slavery.
9: And of course, we do know that. We know when South Carolina, Haley's home state, seceded, the first state to do so, they said it was to protect slavery. We also know some people don't like to say that out loud and prefer talking about states' rights or states' freedoms or free enterprise. Well, the whole incident serves to remind us that Haley has never run for anything outside her home state.
0: How are Haley's competitors responding to all this?
9: Well, everyone got to dunk on Nikki Haley this week. A couple of her opponents for the Republican nomination, Chris Christie and Ron DeSantis, mocked her for it. Uh, DeSantis says she wasn't ready for she wasn't ready for prime time. Uh, Even President Joe Biden sent out a forward message just saying, quote, it was about slavery. And, you know, it all came at an awful time for Haley. She had been gaining ground in New Hampshire. Uh, Two state polls there showed her within hailing distance of Trump if she could consolidate some of the anti-Trump vote in that state. She had the support of its popular governor. Now she's fighting just to get back to where she was. And all those rivals she had recently surpassed are gleefully welcoming her back into the pack.
0: Now, former President Donald Trump, meanwhile, scored a bit of a win in Michigan, where the state Supreme Court decided this week to keep him on the ballot, but then Maine Secretary of State decided to take him off the primary ballot there. How many more states can we expect to make these calls?
9: There may be quite a few. Uh, We should note these conflicts all pertain to primaries at this point, but they could also affect Trump's eligibility to be on the ballot in November. Now, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, could step in at this point and clear the air. It could dismiss these ballot challenges for the primaries and possibly for November, too. But the court seems less than eager to get involved Mm. in all this presidential campaigning. The court tends to wait. They would rather this cup pass from them, uh, rather that the case got resolved in some other way. But just as they will have to decide whether Trump is immune from prosecution, they will probably have to decide if he is fit to be on the ballot. Uh, Right now, it seems highly unlikely they would deny the voters the right to decide. You don't have to be radically pro-Trump to think the voters have a right to decide.
0: Okay, so let's turn to the border now and President Biden. President Biden is under growing pressure to increase security on the southern border. Agents there have encountered roughly two and a half million migrants so far this year, which is a record high. But Biden is also under the gun to provide more funding for the war in Ukraine. How is he going to square that budget circle?
9: Uh, These two issues, Ukraine and the southern border, were yoked together in the Senate in an effort to win over Republicans. Democrats seemed willing to bend much further than they have before on immigration restrictions in order to get that aid for Ukraine. But thus far, it's been slow going. Without Republican help, it is quite possible Biden will be stuck with the defeat of Ukraine and a border crisis, despite his best efforts to compromise and his willingness to anger some of his Democratic constituencies in the process.
0: NPR Senior Editor and Correspondent Ron Elving, thank you. Thank you. A barrage of over 150 Russian missiles and drones struck Ukrainian cities Friday. Buildings hit include apartments, schools, and churches, killing at least 30 people and wounding over 160, that's according to the Ukrainian government. And officials there say it's the largest aerial attack since the war began in February of 2022. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny is in Ukraine and has more details from Lviv. Hi Alyssa. Hi Alina. Alyssa, tell us more about
11: the strikes. What all happened? So, the attacks were all across the country. There were some energy infrastructure hit in the east. But largely, the attack hit mostly places where civilians live and visit. More than 45 apartment buildings, 100 private homes. In the city of Dnipro, in central Ukraine, the attack hit a shopping mall and a maternity hospital. Artem Rysukin was in Dnipro visiting his family for Christmas. He planned to see the movie Ferrari Friday night at that shopping mall that was hit.
12: The
13: world somehow is growing tired of of news from Ukraine, while we try not to get tired of being bombed, of being terrorized.
0: He sounds so exhausted.
11: Yeah, and you know, in Kyiv, a commercial warehouse was hit. This morning, the mayor said the bodies of four more people were found in the rubble. The other thing that happened, Alina, is that one of Russia's missiles appears to have briefly entered the airspace of Poland, a NATO member, according to the military there. It only lasted about three minutes in Polish airspace, reaching just about 24 miles inside Poland, before flying back to Ukraine.
0: So I understand Ukrainian officials are saying that its air defense systems managed to shoot down most of the missiles, even though there were a lot of them, right?
11: Yeah, that is right. And, you know, what's different now versus, say, a year ago is Ukraine has new Western supplied air defense systems, including the Patriot missile defense system from the U.S. And so, yes, they were able to shoot down a lot of those missiles. Russia was likely testing and aiming to weaken those defenses with the volume and kind of all of these missiles and drones at once. What has been the response to this attack in Ukraine? For Ukrainians who've had kind of a quiet fall, it's been terrifying. Mm. Ola Alexieva, who has two kids in Dnipro, said the hardest part was watching her five-year-old be so afraid. Mama, Mama, I don't
14: want to die.
6: He and I was not ready
11: He told her, Mom, I don't want to die. He said it over and over again. You know, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky gave an address about the attacks. He said Ukraine would respond, though he didn't provide any details, and the Ministry of Defense of Russia claimed that Ukraine sent drones and U.S. made harm missiles into Russian territory in the aftermath, but Ukraine has not confirmed that. Any response from abroad? The U.N. Security Council and many foreign leaders have expressed outrage, including President Biden, who urged Congress to approve billions of dollars in funding for Ukraine. That is currently stalled. Mm. The Ukrainian Minister of Foreign Affairs said he wanted the sound of explosions in Ukraine to be heard all across the world. And according to the Institute for the Study of War, Russia will likely continue to do these large-scale aerial attacks to beat down Ukrainian morale and and limit the country's military capabilities. I mean, just this morning, Alina, we've had air raid sirens go off across Ukraine. So officials here are bracing for more attacks to continue this whole weekend. NPR's Alyssa Nadverny reporting in Ukraine from the city of Lviv.
0: Thank you so much, Alyssa. Thanks, Alina. And we turn to China now, where a new defense minister took over the post on Friday, and the news brought to an end a month-long period of intrigue after the former defense chief went missing and then was removed from his post without explanation. NPR's John Riewicz has this report.
15: <laughs>
16: news of the appointment of Admiral Dong Jun as defense minister was tucked near the end of state TV's primetime broadcast, and there were few details. But the fact that China now has a defense minister after months without one is positive, analysts say. Dong's predecessor, Li Shangfu, dropped out of the public eye late in the summer and was removed in October amid speculation of corruption. Li was also under U.S. sanctions, which was one of the reasons Beijing rejected invitations for talks with U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. But bilateral dialogue is just getting back on track after a frosty period. Taylor Fravel is director of the Security Studies program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology.
12: It is not inconceivable that within the next few weeks, right, there could be a phone call between Austin and Admiral Dole. And that would be positive, right? Because given the growing competition and rivalry between the two countries, maintaining real communication between the two militaries is important.
16: Dong is a career naval officer who joined the force in the late 1970s. Before becoming head of the Navy, he spent time in the Eastern Fleet and Southern Command. Both are major theaters where Beijing is caught up in territorial disputes, including over Taiwan, the Senkaku or Diaoyu Islands, and the South China Sea. Still, as the first defense secretary in China to come from the Navy, it's a choice that Fravel says may make sense. The Navy has gained prominence in China's military modernization drive, and navies tend to be the most outward-facing branch.
12: And so, for this reason, I think he's probably particularly well-suited to the job because of his experience with the East Sea Fleet and then, I think, later with the Southern Command.
16: Even so, analysts say, Chinese defense ministers don't command troops, and it's the ruling Communist Party that ultimately calls the shots. Meanwhile, the fate of the former defense minister, Li Shangfu, remains unknown and an ongoing purge in the military appears to still be underway. On Friday, nine officers were removed from their roles in China's legislature. John Riewicz, NPR News.
0: You're listening to NPR News
16: turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR.
17: Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. Coming up this hour, a profile of one of the most in-demand jazz drummers in New Orleans, Herlin Riley. It's 43 degrees in Boston clouds, some showers, temperatures today in the mid 40s. Sunny tomorrow, Sunday's high around 40. Tomorrow night for New Year's Eve, clouds, lows in the mid-20s. And on Monday, New Year's Day,
8: partly sunny, a high around 40 degrees. WBUR supporters include Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com and comedian Jimmy Tingle in Humor and Hope for the Holidays, Comedy and Politics, December 29th through New Year's Eve, Wimberley Theatre, JimmyTingle.com.
1: I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The Biden administration has again skipped Congress and approved a weapons sale to Israel. The State Department says Secretary of State Antony Blinken has determined that an emergency exists, allowing the administration to bypass Congress for the second time this month. The more than $147 million sale involves the equipment needed to go along with the artillery shells Israel has already purchased. A federal judge has temporarily blocked an Iowa law from going into effect in the new year that would ban some books from school libraries and forbids teachers from discussing LGBTQ plus issues. And in Ohio, Republican leaders are calling on the state legislature to override the Republican governor's veto of a bill that would ban gender-affirming care. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals, this year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at MacFound.org and from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition. From NPR News, I'm Alina Sieruch. Israeli military officials say they are stepping up their offensive in Gaza, as tens of thousands of displaced Palestinians continue to flee into the southernmost corner of the enclave. United Nations officials are warning about the humanitarian situation, especially in southern Gaza, where overcrowding, food shortages, and spreading disease have reached critical levels. Cross-border artillery exchanges between Lebanon and Israel have also increased in recent days, with Israel issuing stern warnings to Hezbollah militants. NPR's Keri Khan joins us now from Tel Aviv. Good morning, Carrie. Hello so what can you tell us about the stepped up offensive deep into gaza
19: by israel's military Fighting has intensified with Israel stepping up air, land, and sea bombardments in recent days. Both Hamas and Israel's military have reported intense combat in central Gaza and around the second-largest city, Khan Yunus, and even in southern Gaza, where Israel has told most Gazans to go for their safety. The UN says 100,000 more Palestinians have fled in recent days to the south according to gaza's health ministry more than twenty one thousand palestinians have been killed since the start of the war now the u.n secretary general yesterday again called for a humanitarian ceasefire and release of all hostages that hamas is still holding captive from the october seventh attack on israel antonio guterres said he is concerned about further spillover of the conflict throughout the region
0: and what is the situation along the lebanese israeli border in the north
19: Ah, cross-border artillery and rocket fire have been a daily occurrence there all week, with many already happening today. We've heard some warning sirens have been constant in northern Israeli towns. Israel says it's carried out extensive strikes on Hezbollah targets in. Lebanon near the Israeli border just in the last couple days Israeli military officials this week issued some very stern warnings to Hezbollah fighters in Lebanon one member of the Israeli war cabinet was quoted earlier this week warning the militants that Israel could do in Beirut what it has done in Gaza if Hezbollah continues its attacks into northern Israel Mm. and what's the latest on
0: any proposals for a ceasefire or an exchange of hostages
19: Earlier in the week, there was an Egyptian proposal and now another attempt by Qatar is being discussed, but neither appears to be moving forward. The proposals call for a withdrawal of Israeli troops from Gaza and a political resolution to the conflict, but Israel still wants to press ahead with its military goal of crushing Hamas. Meanwhile, last night, an interview of one of the released hostages, Maya Shem, is getting much play on major news outlets here in Israel. Here's a small excerpt from Channel 13. Jem talks about feeling very guilty about being freed while others remain in Gaza and she talks about promising them as she left that that the hostages will not be forgotten she was held in Gaza for more than 50 days part of the time with a family there she says she also says she had an operation there without anesthesia or painkillers for a wound she sustained in the October 7th attack and she says while while there she felt like being a caged animal in a zoo. Mm, That's uh, NPR's Gary Kahn in Tel Aviv. Thank you for sharing all this. Thank you for having me.
0: People from Lahaina are still struggling to piece together their lives after the devastating wildfire in August. The destruction of homes and the death toll 100 people died make the fire among the deadliest in modern U.S. history. Bill Dorman of Hawaii Public Radio is based in Honolulu, but he and his team have been making reporting trips to Maui. He's here joining us now. Thank you.
20: Aloha, Lina. Thank you for having me.
0: So in Maui, lots of residents rely on tourism for their livelihoods. Have tourists come back?
20: Well, Christmas and New Year's usually mark a busy period for tourism in Hawaii and and so far this month, figures around the state are similar to a year ago, except for Maui, which is down about 20% when it comes to visitors, and for the year so far, it's down about a third. The University of Hawaii's Economic Research Organization says Maui is more dependent on tourism than any other island. But residents in West Maui are also dealing with other big issues. And top of that list, of course, is housing for those who lost their homes in the fires.
0: Can you tell us more about that? I think Hawaii had a housing crisis even before the fire, right?
20: Definitely, and still does. And in terms of Maui, nearly 6,300 Maui residents who lost their homes are still in temporary housing. For most folks, that means hotel rooms right now. And as local hotels have opened to more tourism, a lot of those fire survivors have been moved around. Courtney Lazo is one of them. Her family's been in Lahaina for five
3: generations.
18: It's so draining. I think not even just the physical action of
3: being shuffled around, but the anticipating, like, when is it going to happen? Can we
18: unpack our containers or garbage bag of belongings? How do you start to heal and start to rebuild your life and create some sense of new normal if you can't even unpack?
0: That sounds so stressful. So what is being done to find more long-term housing?
20: You know, everyone from the governor to the mayor of Maui to the county council has been taking steps to encourage property owners who have short-term rentals, like Airbnbs, to turn them into longer-term rental options for local residents. And if tax breaks and other measures don't work on encouraging that, Governor Josh Green is threatening to issue a moratorium on short-term rentals through emergency rules, even if his office faces litigation as a result. If we don't get people stepping up, I'm going to drop the hammer on short-term rentals that aren't able to be used for our people. It's just not okay that we don't have housing for our local people. The pressure's likely going to increase next month when the state legislature opens a new session. It's not clear exactly what lawmakers will do, but it's certainly going to be top of mind.
0: Lastly, are there any updates to what we know about the origins of the fire?
20: Well, not a lot. The CEO of the local utility, Hawaiian Electric, says their power lines knocked down by high winds appear to have caused a fire that same morning of Mm. August 8th. But she says she was told by the Maui County Fire Department that it was put out, and she says her company is not responsible for the fire that later swept Lahaina. Formal investigations into the cause still very much ongoing. One of the investigations being led by State Attorney General Ann Lopez, whose office is working with the Fire Safety Research Institute. Another is being done by the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. And there have been a series of lawsuits against the county, the state, the utilities and others about who's responsible for the disaster but really for now for for thousands of maui residents the primary focus remains just on daily life and getting to a better place for housing
0: hawaii public radio's bill dorman thank you so much
20: thank you lena and aloha
0: across the u.s there's been a shift in how some doctors treat schizophrenia The new approach is to intervene early when psychosis first appears and keep young people in school or at work so later they don't end up on the street. Studies show the treatment is effective, so why won't insurance
7: companies pay for it? Here's April Domboski of Member Station KQED. It's 4 p.m. in downtown Redwood City, just south of San Francisco, and Monet Burpee is about to go job hunting. Not for herself for her clients who have schizophrenia.
12: So I'm about to, like, give you the real experience.
7: She smooths out her dress, touches up her lip gloss, and walks into the movie theater. Then after that, an Indian restaurant.
16: My name is Monet, and I'm a job coach.
7: Monet starts her work with young people soon after they've had their first psychotic symptoms. She's tasked with keeping an eye on their future. If they want to finish college, she helps them stay in school. If they want to work, she goes scouting for jobs chatting up restaurant managers to find a good fit.
16: So what positions are you looking for? One uh,
14: dishwasher. Dishwasher? Yeah, a general manager here. Ooh, okay.
7: Monet says helping her clients land a job is about helping them see themselves differently. Instead of living on disability checks, known as SSI, they can be independent, career-oriented people.
16: It has better long-term positive results versus you just sitting around on SSI. This
7: is what she said to one of her clients, M, after she had her first psychotic episode. and was taking new medications that made her really tired. Since I didn't really have anything to do, I would kind of just take super long naps during the day. Em is 21 now. NPR has agreed to call her by her middle initial and is using a recording that alters her voice because she fears the stigma around her mental illness could disrupt her career path. Em first experienced psychosis right out of high school, while working her first job at a fast food restaurant. She started to think her coworkers could read her mind. I was like, are they talking about burgers or are they talking about me? (laughs) There was one coworker in particular that she was pretty sure was watching her. One day, Em got so scared, she locked herself in the bathroom. Her mom called 911. After a couple weeks in the hospital, Em was diagnosed with schizophrenia. She was referred to the Felton Institute near San Francisco. It's one of 350 outpatient programs for early psychosis treatment in the U.S. Right away, and was introduced to a team of providers who would be by her side for the next two years.
12: First, I was set up with the therapist
7: who taught her coping skills for paranoia and delusions. A physician who prescribed antipsychotic medication.
16: OT therapist,
7: an occupational therapist, peer specialist. A guy who also had psychosis and recovered. Family support. A parent who coached her mom on how to help her at home. I also was set up with Monet, which is the job coach. They filled out job applications together. Next thing I know, I got hired. She started out as a cashier at a new fast food restaurant, and within three months, she got promoted to a manager role. The state and federal government invest tens of millions of dollars into these specialized early psychosis clinics every year, but all this public money flows into public insurance programs like Medicaid, which in California is called Medi-Cal. Commercial insurance companies like Anthem or Blue Shield almost always refuse to pay for the full suite of services. Overall, this means only low-income families like EMS can get the gold standard of care, while middle-class families cannot.
11: It is a reverse disparity.
7: That's UC Davis psychologist Tara Neendham. She testified in the California legislature about how this disparity shows up at her early psychosis clinic in Sacramento.
11: I can give the Rolls Royce of care if you walk in and you have Medi-Cal.
7: But she says close to 60% of Californians have commercial insurance.
11: That's 60% of kids whose parents call me crying when I tell them they can't access my clinic.
7: So what happens to these kids? Generally, they're on their own to find a psychiatrist and therapist who accepts their insurance. Health plans will pay for these medical services. But they won't cover anything else. The job and education support, the peer specialist, the family coach. Health advocate David Lloyd says this is discrimination. If someone has cancer insurers would never just pay for surgery and radiation but not chemotherapy
16: the idea that you can split apart the package of services and only reimburse for little components of it really destroys the whole evidence base of what the service is
7: several states have tried to force insurance companies to pay for the full spectrum of early psychosis treatment illinois had some success massachusetts and virginia are working on it But in California, a recent attempt to expand coverage died under pressure from the insurance lobby. Nick Luisos is from the California Association of Health Plans. He says insurers don't like being cornered into specific treatments.
5: Research evolves. There could be um, evidence-based techniques that are better in the future.
7: There are about 80 studies that show this approach to early psychosis works. Patients who get it are more likely to stay in school, in jobs, in treatment, and out of the hospital. But what isn't known is how long the positive effects last.
1: There is a lack of evidence of this model's long-term effectiveness.
7: The private insurance restrictions create a perverse incentive for middle-income families who need help now. Some parents are so desperate to give their kids the best care, they actually drop them from their health plan and enroll them in Medicaid. Advocate David Lloyd says this means for-profit insurance companies are allowing the public to pay their bills.
16: That's not an appropriate role for taxpayers.
7: For Em and her family, the full-scope early psychosis care has been life-changing. Recently, Em has struggled with some of her symptoms. The difference is now she knows what's happening. She knows how to quiet the voices. And she knows there are a half-dozen providers who will pick up if she calls for help. For NPR News, I'm April Demboski in San Francisco. This story comes
0: from NPR's partnership with KQED and KFF Health News. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. 2023 was a long year in the Texas State House. The governing body held four special sessions and an impeachment trial of the state's attorney general. They passed controversial legislation that got tied up in court, including a ban on gender affirming care, a bill limiting the power of local governments, and one of the strictest immigration laws in the country, But Texas newsroom political reporter, Sergio Martinez Beltran says there was another quieter moment that stood out from the noise this year in Austin.
21: When I think about 2023 in the Texas legislature, a few words come to mind. Historic, sure, but also messy and complicated. But one moment, a positive one, stands out to me. Have all members voted. They've been 147 eyes and zero nays. The resolution is adopted. Some quick backstory before I get to it. Last spring, the House voted unanimously to expel former state representative Brian Slayton for inappropriate sexual conduct with a female aide. The chair directs the Sergeant-at-Arms to bar the former member from the chamber. Right after the vote, House Sergeant-at-Arms, Kara Coffey, went up a ladder and physically removed Slayton's name from the voting board something she hoped was cathartic for other victims of abuse who were watching.
11: I think there's so many women that were watching or saw those pictures that just replaced that name with somebody else on their own
21: head. That's Coffee, the first woman to ever hold the position of Sergeant at Arms in the Texas House of Representatives. That makes her the chief law enforcement officer in the chamber.
11: And we also you know, bring in and decorate the Christmas tree. So we have a little bit of managing terrorism and safety and Christmas trees. <laughs>
21: Coffee landed with the House Sergeant-at-Arms in 2020 as a supervisor, but she says she got pushback for trying to fill the office with more women. So when she became the head of the sergeant's office in 2023, Coffee promoted Brianna Wallace to Assistant Sergeant-at-Arms, meaning both top security jobs are now held by women for the first time since the Texas legislature started in 1846. And there's added significance for Wallace, the first black woman to hold her post.
6: I remember telling my mom I wanted to be the first
22: black president of the United States, and then Obama did that. <laughs> and so I was like, mm, okay, I'll do the sergeant at arms. Wallace
21: was always interested in politics, and working as a sergeant is a way to get involved without the politicking. She's been mentored by Coffee, who is white, and whom Wallace says has vouched for her and other people of color. Now, Wallace wants to help others in the same way.
10: I would hope that I could pave the way for more people of color to just know that they are capable
22: of being in spaces like this. I think that's very important.
21: Goffey says she also wants the public to understand that authority doesn't have to look like a man.
11: Women have been taught, like, if you wear a hot pink suit at work, you're not going to be taken seriously and, you know, whatever. And, okay, cool, people can believe that, but for me, I'm... You know, I'm taking care of death threats to the members while wearing like a lime green pantsuit.
21: In the meantime, both women say they want their legacy to be that they change the culture of the Texas House Sergeant at Arms office. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez Beltran in Austin.
0: In 1992, a Massachusetts park supervisor started what's become a New Year's Day tradition, taking a hike. Almost 400 hikers came that day, and shall we say the rest is history. Sometimes there's even cocoa. Find out more tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday. Tune in on a radio smart speaker or your smartphone's browser.
6: This is NPR News. The Bristol County DA's office is investigating a shooting by police in Fairhaven last night. Fairhaven police were called to a bar because of reports of an intoxicated man involved in a fight. An initial investigation indicates the fight started when someone tried to stop Paul Kader from driving. The DA's office says police from three departments tried to de escalate the situation, but Kader fired his handgun and police shot and killed him. An officer was treated for a gunshot wound in his leg. Last year, Coderre Adair was fired from his post as New Bedford's acting fire chief because of allegations of faking injuries to get leave benefits. In Boston, workers are getting ready for the city's traditional New Year's Eve event. First night begins at 11 tomorrow morning. Keep in mind, this year for the first time, the focus has moved from Copley Square to City Hall Plaza. Plus, you'll find ice sculptures along the waterfront. The first-night parade starts at City Hall at 6 tomorrow and wraps up on Boston Common. Fireworks are set for 7 p.m. over the Common and for midnight over the Harbor. Last night, the Celtics beat the Toronto Raptors 120 to 118. Tonight, at the Garden, the Bruins take on the New Jersey Devils. It's 43 degrees in Boston, some showers today, temperatures in the mid-40s. For Sunday, sunny, a high around 40. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start First Night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com
23: slash firstnight. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about sustaining journalism that helps thinking people think harder. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Now's the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of cash, stock, or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Give by midnight tomorrow at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems more information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org this is npr
0: this is weekend edition from npr news i'm alina celu christmas is over but chances are if you have a live tree it's probably still up maybe you don't have the heart or the energy to take it down or maybe you're like me keeping it for new year's eve but Sooner or later, the trees has gotta hit the curb. Or does it? If you're in southern Maine, for example, you could take it to Popham Beach, which needs a little help.
24: We had a very large coastal storm here of December of last year that really, really flattened and eroded the dunes.
0: Peter Slavinsky is a marine geologist with the Maine Department of Agriculture, Conservation and Forestry. After a bit of research, he found that Christmas trees for years have been used to build up dunes in North Carolina and New Jersey. Those annoying needles are apparently great at catching and holding sand
5: even if it loses some of the needles by the time you put it out the branches are still there and it traps sand very very quickly
0: or you could try a lake jewel Hale is the lead park ranger for the u.s army corps of engineers at belton lake in central
3: texas it might take a little bit of time it might be immediately but a lot of the fish that will be attracted to habitat such as submerged trees uh, we're hoping that they'll be able to move in and kind of make it their home and hopefully with all those fish being attracted to that habitat, then our local fishermen and recreators will be able to come and use that as part of their recreational enjoyment as well.
0: And look, if you want to cut out the middleman and take your tree straight to an animal, there's roaring acres alpacas. It's a farm in Suffield, Connecticut, that's home to sheep, goats, and horses. But owner Allison Minch says it's the alpacas that love to munch on Christmas trees. They
3: really enjoy it. It's, it's like a little enrichment gives them something else to do during the cold winter days. And they'll eat the needles clean off of the tree and they leave all the branches. And Minch's farm is not the only one that will take your trees. You know, if you're not local to us or... or and it's not convenient to get a tree to us, look around for what's in your vicinity that may be looking for trees for a little extra forage for their animals this time of year.
0: That was Allison Minch, Jewel Hale, and Peter Slavinsky. Reading recommendations, we got them. NPR's Books We Love has hundreds of ideas, everything from mysteries, science fiction, nonfiction, and today...
14: It had to be you. It
1: had to be you.
0: Oh, we got the love today from four of our NPR
3: colleagues who each have a good romance novel for you to cuddle up with. It's really hard not to fall for a romance novel where the main love interest is a brooding tattooed dude who runs a flower shop. This is Lauren Migaki. I'm a senior producer at NPR, and I am reviewing Forget Me Not by Julie Soto. Elliot Bloom, LOL, hates being a florist, but he took over the family shop when his dad died. Meanwhile, Ama Torres is a wedding planner who doesn't believe in marriage, at least not for herself. And despite working in the same industry, the two have carefully avoided each other since their disastrous breakup years ago. Until, of course, they're both booked to work the same wedding. This book is a love letter to beautiful and rare flowers. that will have you running to your nearest florist or tattoo artist.
10: Hi, I'm Janine Hurst. I'm a news anchor on Newscast, and the book I'm recommending is The Porcelain Moon by Janie Chang. It's set against the backdrop of World War I in France and tells the story of two women. Pauline, a Chinese woman who works at her uncle's shop in Paris, but she's the poor relation, which means he controls her life. The other is Camille, a French woman born into genteel poverty in a magnificent house that's been sold off bit by bit to keep food on the table. Both women were born at a time when others decided the direction of their lives and both take immense risks to be able to choose on their own. Pauline is running from an arranged marriage that would send her to Shanghai when she wants a life in Paris. Camille is trying to escape a violent marriage. I love Chang's richly researched historical fiction books and this one doesn't disappoint.
11: I'm Rachel Treisman. I'm a writer and editor for Morning Edition. One book I really loved this year is The Collected Regrets of Clover by Mickey Brommer. Contrary to the title, this is actually a really uplifting read. The main character, Clover, lives in New York City and works as a death doula. She's focused on giving people their best possible final days, often at the expense of living out her own. Clover gets a ton of useful life advice from her clients, but because she's so consumed by her job, she doesn't really get to put much of it into practice. Some new friends and a particularly feisty client helped change that, bringing her both out of her shell and her apartment. Clover embarks on a cross-country road trip with the goal of reuniting long-lost lovers. And surprisingly, at least to her, she ends up on a romantic journey of her own. To me, this book is a reminder about the importance of living life to the fullest, and in some ways, a guide to how we can try. I'm Kalyani
0: Saxena, I'm an associate producer with Here and Now, and my book is The Gothic Fantasy Starling House by Alex E. Harrow. The book takes place in a fictional coal town called Eden, Kentucky, where the air is just thick with dust. It's a story about a haunted house, but also about the inevitable and inescapable pull of history. At the center of the book are two people, Opal and Arthur. They're lonely and they're shouldering the burden of a town that really refuses to make peace with the past. And the romance that unfolds between the two of them is so lovely in its yearning, it'll make your bones ache. The book is Starling House, and it's recommended by Kalyani Saxena. You also heard from Rachel Treisman with The Collected Regrets of Clover. Virginian Herbst suggests The Porcelain Moon, and Lauren McGahey talked about the brooding tattoo dude who runs a flower shop in Forget-Me-Not. For even more ideas, you can find the full list of books we love at npr.org bestbooks. As you make your bucket list, See the Egyptian pyramids, experience the Northern Lights in Iceland, visit the Sistine Chapel in Rome. Be sure to add hearing Herlin Riley in New Orleans. He is the Dean of Jazz Drummers in the city that gave America rhythm. John Burnett has our profile.
17: Herlin Riley is setting up his drum kit on stage at the New Orleans Jazz Museum for an afternoon concert with a hot Cuban trio. There'll be a good crowd. When Riley is on the bandstand, word gets around. (laughs) To recycle an old descriptor, the 66-year-old drummer is a living legend. He's played with Ahmad Jamal, Wynton Marsalis, Danny Barker, Dr. John, and Marcus Roberts. And he remains one of the most in-demand drummers here in the city known as the Cradle of Jazz. The MC of today's concert, veteran jazz impresario Jason Patterson, pushes the boundaries of superlatives in his introduction.
13: How lucky we are We've got
14: the heaviest, heaviest drummer on the planet, pretty much. That yeah. right? right.
17: Riley's playing is profound, not only because he represents the quintessence of jazz, but also because he has the bloodline. He's part of the Lasty musical dynasty in New Orleans. His grandfather, drummer Frank Lasty, jammed with none other than Louis Armstrong when they both spent time at a juvenile detention facility called the Colored Waif's Home around 1915. Lasty went on to become a deacon who's credited with bringing the drums into church. Riley was raised by his grandparents.
15: But I heard my grandfather playing these New Orleans street beat rhythms on the kitchen table using butter knives. After we'd have some some toast and some eggs, and he'd spread the butter on the bread and so he'd wipe the butter knives off. And then we'd have a game and he'd play these rhythms for me on the table. And it sounded something like this.
17: 40 years later, Herlin Riley would be playing that butter knife beat with Wynton Marsalis and the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. The whole Lasty family was musical. In addition to his grandfather, his uncles were all professional musicians. Saxophonist David Lasty Sr., trumpeter Melvin Lasty, and drummer Poppy Lasty. From them, he imbibed the sounds of shuffles, swing, funk, soul, and blues. And there was music from the sanctified church where he learned how to play the tambourine and brought it onto the bandstand.
15: I started playing it after watching ladies in church play the tambourine. They would get these rhythms out of the tambourine that was just so incredible. And I, and Tell me the church, classic church
17: tambourine beat. Among Riley's many admirers is Wynton Marsalis, artistic director of jazz at Lincoln Center, whose big band Riley played with for 17 years. They've known each other since they were teenagers, playing in the storied Fairview Baptist Church marching band. People see
21: Hurling play the tambourine. Okay, he's a master of that, but Hurling can play all kinds of stuff.
17: Marsala says when he hears Riley play the drums, he hears joy, spirituality, accuracy, and an encyclopedic ability.
21: He has a lot of experience playing with a lot of different people, everything from a burlesque show to playing with Alma Jamal, to playing New Orleans Parade, to playing all the symphonic music we played. He has a kind of ancient wisdom and understanding that informs his sound.
17: The thing about a Herlin Riley performance is that you can't take your eyes off of him. He always has a euphoric smile that says he's having more fun than anybody else in the room. He's twirling his sticks in the air like a vaudeville drummer, and he's playing everything. Tambourine, cowbell, woodblock, the drum shell, the other drumstick, a water pipe sticking out of the wall. I saw Herlin at a hotel gig on St. Charles Avenue. In the middle of his solo, the waiter held out a water pitcher and he beat on that. A few minutes later, the waiter handed him a glass of red wine while he played a one-stick solo with his other hand.
24: He's one of the last of his kind. And by that, I mean, directly connected to the origins of
17: improvisational American music. David Torkinowski is a veteran New Orleans pianist who's been playing with Riley their whole adult lives. You can hear the ancestry
24: in his playing. The music here is so pure because it it comes directly from Africa. So does his playing. I mean, it's just, you can't help but feel it. and You can't help but understand how grounded it is when you hear it.
17: This performance happened in November in New York City on pianist Emmett Cohen's popular YouTube channel, Live from Emmett's Place. Riley takes his renown as one of America's greatest living drummers with a grain of salt.
15: I appreciate the respect, but I don't take it seriously. I take it very, very lightly. Because, you know, I'm a strong believer in God and everything we have is by God's grace. And so I don't get too full of myself. I don't get too full of ego. I'm not the greatest. I'm just one of his vessels, one of the people that he put the light in.
17: There's something about breakout national artists who were born on the sacred rhythmic ground of the Crescent City. They never really leave home. They've always got that second line, Tipitina's Fat Tuesday sound going on in their musical mind. Here's Herlin Riley singing a New Orleans standard with the Emmett Cohen Quartet.
15: For
17: For NPR News, I'm John Burnett in New Orleans.
15: (laughs) Big fine day, who I shake that to the was with a big
11: Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Learn more about the music and artists you hear on NPR and discover new music by visiting npr.org slash music. There you can also watch a tiny desk concert or get an exclusive first listen of new music.
15: On a grind, two, nine,
0: eight, As this year, 2023, comes to a close, we want to take this moment to appreciate everyone who works hard all year long to bring you Weekend Edition. <laughs> ¶¶ Our show is produced by Hiba Ahmad, Samantha Balaban, Ryan Bank, Andrew Craig, Danny Hensel, Gabe O'Connor, Fernando Nara Rahman, Martin Patience, Lennon Sherburn, Michael Radcliffe, with thanks to Gabriel Donatov. Our editors are Hadil Alshalchi, Melissa Gray, Ed McNulty, Dee Parvaz, Matthew Sherman, and Lucy Perkins. Shannon Rhodes is our senior editor. Hannah Glovna is our technical director with engineering support by Carly Strange, Nisha Hines, and Phil Edfords. Our senior supervising editor is Evie Stone, and our executive producer is Sarah Oliver. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Scott Simon will be back next week. I'm Alina Seluch. Hope you have a wonderful new.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From Jarl and Pamela Moen, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. It's coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues. Join us next month at City Space for a conversation with Chef Jack Zhang. His viral videos of cooking for his two-year-old son have inspired a new cookbook. That's Monday, January 8th. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. It's 43
8: degrees in Boston. Some showers today. Temperatures in the 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by comedian Jimmy Tingle, playing December 29th through New Year's Eve at the Wimberley Theatre. Humor and hope for the holidays. Tickets at jimmytingle.com.
25: On this week's Wait, Wait, Weird Al Yankovic explains how he came to cast Daniel Radcliffe as himself in the movie he made about his own life.
16: The first time I saw Harry Potter, I thought, you know, someday that guy's gotta play me. <laughs> right.
25: I'm Peter Sagel. Weird Al plays himself on this week's show, as does Gina Davis, Karen Allen, and Instagram's Huddest Lobsterman. I, however, will be played by Stanley Tucci, because the studio insisted on a name. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Saturday, and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
8: I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Aline Selu. This hour, how the U.S. debate about immigration looks and sounds from Mexico. And the chase after driverless cars takes a wrong turn in San Francisco.
15: We need actual people behind the wheel with a pulse and a brain that know how to maneuver in sticky situations.
0: Plus, how the cost of life in America got pricier and cheaper this year, and female athletes dominating the year in sports. Also, later in the show, actor Carrie Mulligan on writing a letter to the woman whose life she got to depict in her new film, Maestro. It's Saturday, December 30th, 2023. The news is next.
1: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is promising that Ukraine will respond to the massive aerial assault launched by Russia yesterday, that assault killing at least 30 people and injuring more than 160. NPR's Elisa Nadworny reports that foreign leaders and the U.N. Security Council have expressed outrage and reiterated their support for Ukraine.
11: In a video address, Zelensky did not provide any details of how Ukraine would retaliate, but Russia's defense ministry claimed that Ukraine sent drones and U.S. made missiles into Russian territory following the attack. Ukrainian officials have not confirmed that claim. U.S. President Joe Biden was among those condemning the attack, the largest since the war began. Biden urged Congress to approve billions of dollars in funding for Ukraine that's currently stalled. According to the Institute for the Study of War, Russia will likely continue to launch large-scale aerial attacks to beat down Ukrainian morale and limit the country's military capabilities. Alyssa Nadworny, NPR News, Lviv.
1: An emergency meeting of the U.N. Security Council has overwhelmingly condemned Russia's aerial assault. Countries, including the U.S. and Britain, say hitting civilian infrastructure violates the international rules of war. Olovskog is the European Union's ambassador to the council.
13: Russia's ongoing systematic airstrikes against civilian objects and critical infrastructure in Ukraine are unacceptable and they must stop. Such intentional attacks against civilians and civilian infrastructure add to the growing evidence of war crimes, as reported by the independent International Commission of Inquiry on Ukraine. Russia and its leadership must be held fully accountable for waging a war of aggression against Ukraine and for other most serious crimes under international
1: law. The Biden administration has again skipped Congress and approved a weapons sale to Israel. The State Department says Secretary of State Antony Blinken has determined that an emergency exists, allowing the administration to bypass Congress for the second time this month. The More than $147 million sale involves the equipment needed to go along with the artillery shells Israel has already purchased. Attorneys former President Donald Trump say they're planning to appeal decisions in Maine and Colorado that removed him from the primary ballot next year. The Pierce Domenico Montanaro reports of decisions part of a patchwork of opinions and rulings headed in one direction.
16: It's hard to see how the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't respond soon to what's happening. Maine and Colorado are now the two states that have decided Trump should be disqualified because of his role in inspiring the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. A handful of other states, including Michigan, Minnesota, and California, have said he can stay on the ballot, and there are cases pending in at least a dozen more states. All of this is happening with just weeks until primary season in a presidential election year, and pressure has to be building among the justices to settle the matter. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The MBTA is getting rid of slow zones at a record pace. The Boston Globe reports that the percentage of subway tracks where trains have to slow down is below 20 percent for the first time since the T slowed trains system wide in March. Only 16 percent of the tracks have slow zones now, with most of them on the red line. The T eliminated 43 speed restrictions this month. That's the most slow zone elimination work in a month since March. Arlington police officers are thanking a group of high schoolers who helped out after a crash. Police say the teenager stopped to assist after noticing the crash in front of the Capitol Theater. The driver was unresponsive and police and the students removed him from the car. He was taken to a local hospital. If you have shopped at the Cambridge side mall recently then you may have noticed two unique vending machines there. They're called giving machines. They're funded by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. People can buy donations for local and national nonprofits, including chickens for people in rural settings, diapers for local families in need, and winter coats for adult refugees in Boston. The church's communications director in Greater Boston, Jared Chrislip, says each charity has received tens of thousands of dollars since December 1st.
16: What's kind of amazing about this approach is that you can put a price point on a need that people here in your community have that you otherwise wouldn't know or know how to address or even potentially have an idea of how much could be meaningful to them.
6: The vending machines will be in the mall until January 1st. Today is your last opportunity to experience Christmas by candlelight at Old Sturbridge Village. The holiday event shows visitors what Christmas celebrations were like in the 19th century. And the event includes food samples, horse-drawn carriage rides, live music, and more. It's 43 degrees in Boston, some showers around temperatures in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, a sunny Sunday and a high around 40 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners,
10: and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Alina Seluchin for Scott Simon. Immigration, already a big issue heading into the 2024 presidential election, has grown even more prominent in recent days. U.S. authorities have been apprehending thousands of migrants along the southern border and images from Mexico show thousands of migrants walking north. This week, President Biden sent top advisors to talk with the Mexican president about the migrant crisis. NPR's Ada Peralta joins us from Mexico City. Ada, hello. Hello. Hey, Alina. What is the latest on those migrants heading north? I think some reports put the group at 10,000 people.
25: Yeah, I mean, so first of all, that number is disputed. I mean, there's been some estimates as high as 10,000, but others have said 4,000, 5,000. The Mexican president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, has said the caravan has already dispersed, uh, that they were uh, only about 1,500 migrants and now about 50 miles into Mexico. Either way, uh, what we know is that there are tens of thousands of migrants stuck along Mexico's southern border, that's the border with Guatemala, and many of them have been waiting for weeks or months, and they really can't leave unless they get some kind of permission from Mexican authorities. And that's by design, uh, because this is part of Mexico's attempt to make this trip uh, to the U.S. much harder for migrants. But This policy ends up in a kind of cycle. Every few months, uh, the number of migrants grows, uh, these border cities swell up, and the conditions deteriorate, tensions grow, and migrants, and sometimes even the authorities decide that they can't take it anymore, and thousands of migrants push their way north as a massive group.
0: And what are you hearing from these migrants?
25: So look, I I spoke to uh, Luis Villagran, who is a migrant rights advocate, and he's traveling with the caravan, and he describes a dire situation in Tapachula, which is a city right along the border with Guatemala. He says shelters are overwhelmed, so many of the migrants are living on the streets. Uh, And he says there's also a lot of concern that Mexican authorities are being pressured by the US to conduct a big crackdown, and there's fear that that might start right away. Um, And that basically means uh, that they will begin deporting migrants. So Luis Villagran describes a lot of desperation. Let's listen.
21: La situación es terrible.
25: The situation is
21: terrible, Pero los gobernantes no les interesa el problema.
25: but the politicians don't care about the humanitarian crisis. All they want is to get reelected. And Villagran notes that this historic level of migration in the Americas points to a continent that is in crisis, uh, but he says that it seems that no one is addressing those crises.
0: So President Biden sent his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, to meet with the Mexican president. Anything come of that?
25: Look, from the public statements uh, that have been put out by both the U.S. and Mexico, we got nothing new. Uh, Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador says that the meeting happened because President Biden called him, saying that he was concerned that U.S. authorities were apprehending too many migrants. Uh, López Obrador says that since that call, Mexico has taken action, uh, and those numbers have dropped. But he didn't say what action Mexico has taken. Um, And he also said that both cabinets agreed to meet again in January.
0: Okay. How is immigration playing as a political issue there in Mexico?
25: Well, look, uh, you know, Mexico is also going to elect a president uh, in 2024. So we're in the middle of the same campaign that you all are Mm -hmm. in the U.S. But immigration... Uh, isn't really the kind of domestic campaign issue that it is in the U.S. And, and in a lot of ways, it's also not really a foreign policy issue because there is no light between the U.S. and Mexican immigration. The Mexican president uh, has taken a softer approach on migrants, but that's rhetorically. Uh, but he has gone along with the tougher measures that were put in place by both former President Trump and by President Biden. In fact, if it wasn't for Mexico, some of the toughest U.S. policies on migrants wouldn't be possible. Uh, Mexico, for example, is allowing the U.S. to make migrants wait for an asylum hearing in Mexico, and they're allowing the U.S. to expel non-Mexican migrants, deport non-Mexican migrants to Mexico.
0: Looking ahead to that election 2024 year, what do you expect from this issue in that new year?
25: I think we should go back to what uh, migrant rights advocate Luis Villagran told me. He says that the migrants are just a symptom of broken countries in the Americas. And the fact that migration continues at record levels means that those big problems are not being addressed. Um, And I think Haiti is a prime example of that. Uh, Gangs have taken over, its government has basically collapsed, and what is left of that government has been begging for help from the international community. And for more than two years now, the international community has come up empty. They've offered no solutions. The UN did vote to send a Kenyan police force to Haiti, but that hasn't happened, and it's not clear when that will happen, so we're very likely to keep seeing migrant caravans, uh, and we're very likely uh, to see immigration stay at the top of U.S. and Mexican relations, but it's also likely that both countries will continue to be vexed by the issue.
0: That's NPR's Ada Peralta in Mexico City. Mm. This year was meant to be the year of the driverless car. And indeed, hundreds of robo-taxis were unleashed on San Francisco streets. But then for one company, things took a disastrous turn. NPR's
22: Derek Kerr reports. The first time General Motors CEO Mary Barra rode in a driverless car, she was giddy. Oh my god. That's her in a video of the ride. GM had made a big bet on self-driving cars by buying the startup Cruise in 2016. It's since invested billions. And a lot of people have asked me, "Well, how are you going to get people to use it?" It's like, "Okay, we were in the vehicle for 5 minutes and it the trust is there." The trust was there. California had handed out hundreds of permits to Cruz and its main competitor Waymo, which is owned by Google. And this year, for the first time, both companies were allowed to operate like taxis 24/7, giving rides to people with no driver at the wheel. Top executives at the companies pledged their cars were safer than human drivers and that San Francisco was ready for them.
12: We're on a trajectory that most businesses dream of, which is exponential growth.
22: That's Cruz's CEO and co-founder Kyle Vogt speaking to investors. He said San Francisco could, quote, absorb thousands of its driverless cars. But as more robo-taxis blanketed the city, things got messy. Protests broke out. San Francisco City Supervisor Shimon Walton spoke at one in front of Cruz's headquarters. Yay!
2: Yeah. Cruz will! You! Cruz will! Perfect.
15: We need actual people behind the wheel with a pulse and a brain that know how to maneuver in sticky situations.
22: There were a lot of sticky situations. Driverless cars collided with fire trucks and blocked bus lanes. Confused vehicles clogged dead-end streets. And one ran over a dog.
16: The part about we're busy
14: saving lives so ignore all the mess you see has run its course.
22: Philip Coatman is an associate professor at Carnegie Mellon and an expert in self-driving car safety. He says all the talk around driverless cars being perfect and better than human drivers is partially what got the companies in trouble.
14: The narrative started to unravel when they promised we wouldn't make the same stupid mistakes as human drivers. And then they got caught on camera making the same stupid mistakes.
10: And then in October... A woman has been seriously injured after being hit by an autonomous vehicle. Rescuers found the woman trapped under the cruise vehicle and the fire department used the jaws of life to free her. The pedestrian had life-threatening
22: injuries. Experts say this series of unfortunate events could be blamed on the company crews moving too quickly. Missy Cummings runs the autonomy and robotics center at George Mason University.
10: They were late to the self-driving car party and so crews had to do a lot of catch up in a short period of time. Cummings says even before the pedestrian incident, there were signs
22: Cruz was headed for disaster because it wasn't slowing down and addressing all the other
10: mishaps. They were the bull in the china shop. They just kept charging ahead. When we sat around and discussed who was going to have the worst accident in that crowd, everyone knew it was going to be Cruz.
22: After the pedestrian incident, things got even worse for Cruz. California state regulators say the company left out crucial details about what exactly happened. They say Cruz gave them a video which did not show footage of the car dragging the pedestrian an additional 20 feet before stopping on top of her. Regulators say it took Cruz two weeks to hand over the entire video. Here's Carnegie Mellon's Philip Kopman again.
14: If a human driver, heaven forbid, has hit a pedestrian, and you don't see the pedestrian, before you move your car, you're gonna find out where the pedestrian is. Cause you know there's a pedestrian someplace and the last thing you wanna do is be driving over them. But that's exactly what the cruise
19: vehicle did.
22: Now cruise has lost its operating permits, it's facing fines and government investigations. The company says it's working to rebuild trust. It's grounded all of its driverless cars and CEO Kyle Vogt is gone. Parent company GM says it still supports Cruz. But CEO Mary Barra is reining in some of her initial excitement. She's cutting hundreds of millions of dollars in Cruise's funding. Dara Kerr, NPR News.
0: You could ring in New Year's with "Old Lang Syne, but NPR music critic Ann Powers has some other ideas.
12: I think the perfect New Year's
3: Eve to New Year's Day song is one that combines that kind of like willful optimism and the reflectiveness or even skepticism we might have about how things are going to
6: go in the new year. So this is the new
0: year. Catch those recommendations later today on All Things Considered. Listen on your phone, smart speaker or radio. to npr news
16: turn your old vehicle into new news support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to wbur details at wbur.org cars
6: Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is ninety point nine WBUR. Coming up, historian Simon Sebag Montefiore has compiled a playlist to go along with his acclaimed book, The World: A Family History of Humanity. It's forty-three degrees in Boston. Some showers today. Temperatures in the mid forties.
25: WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city. The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR.
1: I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The National Weather Service is warning that conditions could remain dangerous along California's coast today, hit hard by powerful ocean swells this week. A rogue wave Thursday overran a beach in the city of Ventura and sent eight people to the hospital. Maine Secretary of State Shanna Bellows could be facing an impeachment attempt in the state legislature. At least one Republican lawmaker has pledged to pursue impeachment over Bellows' decision to keep former President Donald Trump off the primary ballot. And prosecutors say there is no need for a second trial of FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried. SBF, as he's known, was convicted last month of fraud and money laundering. Prosecutors say there is a strong public interest in resolving the case. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Churchill Downs, presenting the 150th Kentucky Derby, dedicated to making memories last forever for nearly 150 years. The Kentucky Derby on Saturday, May 4th. More at KentuckyDerby.com. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from
0: NPR News. I'm Alina Seluch. How did the cost of life in America change this year? Prices overall have continued to climb, although more slowly than they had been, and some actually fell. Plus, the U.S. economy has avoided a recession. NPR Scott Horsley has been tracking all this. He joins us now. Good morning, Scott. Hi, Lena. Great to be with you. So, Scott, you and I have been covering this for quite a while together. Shall we talk about some specific prices? I was kind of thinking we could start with breakfast. I don't know. What do you think?
24: <laughs> it is the most important meal of the day. Uh, And it did get a little bit more affordable this year. Eggs, which were a poster child for runaway inflation last year, saw a big price drop in 2023 as the flocks of laying hens recovered after that avian flu outbreak last year. Uh, At last count, egg prices were down 22% from a year ago. Mm. Uh, The price of bacon and butter also fell this year with that down about 1%.
0: Um, I think among higher prices, we have bread, which is obviously a breakfast staple, and that is more expensive by almost 4%. And I think there's been a huge spike in the cost of frozen juice. What's that about?
24: Yeah, you were curious why frozen orange juice prices took off even as the price of fresh oranges was up only a little bit. And that's really a story about geography. You know, the oranges we eat mostly come from California and to a lesser extent, Arizona and Texas. But the oranges we drink mostly come from Florida or Brazil. And production in Florida and Brazil has been hurt by both bad weather and Florida's ongoing troubles with citrus greening. So that's why we've seen that big spike in orange juice prices.
0: Overall, inflation has chilled out quite a bit.
24: Yeah, it really has. You know, gas prices, which are some of the most visible prices in the country, have come down almost 9% over the last year. Grocery prices have pretty much leveled off. Uh, They were up a modest 1.7% over the last year. Compare that to a 12% jump in supermarket prices the previous year
0: it's a huge difference 1.7% to 12%. Um another key category we should touch on is obviously housing where i believe costs are still climbing.
24: That's right. Housing has been one of the more stubborn drivers of inflation. Uh, the average home sale price in November was up 4% from a year ago and that's been made worse by rising interest rates. You know a lot of people were just priced out of the housing market this year. But the worst of that could be behind us you know mortgage rates topped out at nearly eight percent during the fall they've since settled back to around 6.6 percent and they are expected to fall somewhat further in the coming year
0: maybe some good news for home ownership now what about rent is it pretty high also
24: yeah and rents are still climbing although not as fast as they had been uh, that's another reason we've seen uh, some easing in overall inflation builders have been putting up a lot of new apartments this year so that should help to keep uh, rental increases in check average rents over the last year have gone up a little more than three percent
0: okay so Big picture, it seems like in many ways, 2023 became the year when life kind of began to look a bit more like it did before the pandemic. And I'm mainly thinking here in terms of the American shopping frenzy, which finally slowed down after two years of going bonkers.
24: That's right. People are not spending quite as freely as they had been. Uh, Certainly stuff's more expensive than it was pre-pandemic, and people are mindful of that shoppers are still spending though even if in some cases they have to borrow money to do so this year we saw outstanding credit card debt top a trillion dollars and that's costly debt with today's interest rates Mm -hmm. and the good news is our savings rate has also climbed up from rock bottom levels and of course savers are also enjoying higher interest
0: which i think a, a big reason for that has to do with wages right i think one thing that really changed this year is paychecks finally started to outpace inflation what is the story there, Scott?
24: Yeah, this is the really good news of the last year. Inflations come down without crippling the job market or causing a big jump in unemployment. The unemployment rate is still really low at 3.7 percent, so workers still have some bargaining power. Wages are still climbing. They're not going up as fast as they had been a year or two ago when employers were desperate to hire people, but The difference is wages are now rising faster than prices. So workers are seeing their real purchasing power increase and the average paycheck goes farther now than it did before the pandemic.
0: Wages catching up to inflation, that's a really big deal. Um, How has this affected the economy? Or I guess, how does it bode for the new year?
24: Well, the latest data shows the US economy growing at a relatively robust 2.9% over the year. Uh, The Federal Reserve has signaled that it's probably done, raising interest rates, and could be ready to start cutting rates in the year to come. And that actually had stock markets ending the year at a near record high.
0: That's NPR's chief economics correspondent, Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. The joys and the strain of a marriage between two driven artists. That's the central line of a new biographical movie, Maestro. I'm going to read
4: a scene with Maestro Bernstein. I better make a show of Maestro. Maestro
25: Bernstein? That sounds very fancy. Yeah. And I'm the king. You're the king, and this is your castle. Oh, wonderful.
4: It
0: charts over three decades of a relationship between bombastic conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein and elegant, reserved actor Felicia Montalegra. And you're the
21: understudy. Yeah. Oh, I think you should be Margaret, I think you should be Margaret eight shows oh, a week, no, that's what no, I no. think, front and center. And if it's
4: fear that's stopping you, oh, Felicia... There are many things stopping Lenny, but fear isn't one of them.
0: Bernstein, most famous for West Side Story and many classical works, is played by Bradley Cooper. He also directed Maestro, which is now streaming on Netflix. The movie is filmed in the style of old Hollywood, stitched with Bernstein's Music <laughs> But top billing in the credits goes to Carrie Mulligan as Felicia Montalegra. And she joins us now. Welcome to the program.
4: Hello. Good afternoon. Well, good afternoon for me.
0: Good morning. Good afternoon. Bernstein is a legend in classical music. Felicia Montalegra is much less known in the cultural fabric. What did you want the viewers to walk away knowing about her?
4: I mean, I knew nothing about her. But I think I was struck by the question of what it would be to be two artists living you know, this life together, but you know, one of whom everyone publicly lords, and the other is just sort of not touched by God in the way that Lena Bernstein seemed to be. Because she came to New York as a young, very ambitious actress and was actually more successful than he was when they first met. So the idea of the two of them deciding to live their life together and the impact that his genius had on her and the impact that she had on him was just so fascinating to me. The more I read about them, the more I just fell in love with their relationship.
0: There's a you know scene where Felicia talks about the price of being in Bernstein's
4: orbit. Having this imposition of a strong personality is like a way of death. Really. At the moment, I see that that is making him suffer. I realize it's not worth it. No. No, what for? It isn't going to kill me, really. And if it's going to give him pleasure or stop him from suffering and it's in my power to do it, then what the hell, you know? <laughs> but one has to do it completely without sacrifice. Can you There's explain this exchange? This is all real, taken straight from a transcript of an interview that she did. I think what she was really trying to say, and it's a piece i listened to over and over again and studied, essentially, but you know, what she's trying to say is that... There is something completely suffocating about being around the fame and the everything that is needed to sustain him i think that is very very draining but that she has essentially committed to do this but she's not going to do it in a typical meek woman by the great man manner she's not going to do it and um, begrudge him she's going to do it wholly because she refuses to be the kind of whinging wife and I think you see that in the film, in the moment that she actually can't handle his uh, narcissism or the focus on him or the way that he views the world, she jumps into a swimming pool. Hello, everyone.
13: I have an announcement
4: to make. I have finished that. That sort of seems to be something that triggers something in her where she goes, Nope, I'm out. Where's mommy going? It goes with her absolute refusal to be a martyr at the altar of LB, which is what she writes in the letter when she first proposes that they get married.
0: You know, this marriage is an extreme example, but there's sort of a universality to Felicia's anguish in that anyone who has fallen in love with the wrong person, I feel like could perhaps relate to that. But I wonder, do you think that is kind of fundamentally the, the tension there is just falling in love with the wrong person?
4: i mean i would argue it wasn't the wrong person that it was just who she fell in love with i think you know i don't think i would suggest that she would regret it because i don't think she would and for in a moment i think they had an incredible life they've got you know three wonderful children and they've left behind this incredible legacy of love but i think there is a universality to the film in that it is a depiction of of a marriage you know and, and and every marriage regardless of any of the details is deeply complicated and very challenging at times. So I think that's, you know, there's a connection for people who are in relationships there, that they see parts of themselves and and in family life, in the wider family life and what it is to have children and to age and all of those things. So I think there's, there's so many points of connection for people.
0: I want to ask about the music in the film. And actually, I want to ask, was there a piece of Bernstein's music that you listen to a lot in preparation to the film while making the film or just that speaks to you the most
4: yeah i think the overture from candide that piece of music in the morning it would be like a giant cup of coffee it was was probably the one i listened to the most if you looked at my kind of spotify <laughs> uh, playlist for the last five years that's been pretty heavy <laughs> Bradley offered me the part in 2018, and then in 2019, we went to Philadelphia, and we narrated Candide together with the Philadelphia Philharmonic. I remember just so vividly standing on stage uh, in rehearsals the first time that they all did make our garden grow. And then every night, you know, when they were playing the overture, as we were about to come on, Bradley and I would stand in the wings and just, the power of the music was just unbelievable, and it was so exciting. and we were sort of giddy dance backstage.
0: You've also said in a few interviews that this was the first role that you allowed yourself to fully commit and sort of immerse into the character. What does that entail?
4: It's interesting because another one of Felicia's kind of bugbears was method acting. or She, she talks in her, one of her interviews about the um, actor's studio. You know, she found it kind of ridiculous and she said they're all hysterical and they're all crying and they're all kind of writhing around on the floor and you know she thought the whole thing was kind of nonsense and that uh, and i think there was a part of me but i didn't get into drama school you know i tried and failed and so i never did any of that stuff where you kind of you know bare your soul to 30 other class members you know sobbing or, or you pretend to be a fried egg like none of that stuff but there was a part of me that always whenever there was a sense of someone sort of really doing the full kind of staying in the dialect all day or any of that kind of stuff, I'd always think like, oh, I'm not that kind of actor. You know, I'm just a sort of jobbing actor. I'm not really a kind of artist actor. And then with this, I just think Bradley was already doing it. You know, he was like fully, fully, unbelievably committed to playing Lenny and doing it everything he could to make it as truthful as possible. And it became immediately clear that he expected the same of me. And so it was just a lot more I mean, a lot more research, but also a lot more kind of, you know, the two of us working together. um, Many, many, many more hours on dialect than I've ever spent on anything. Stuff that would have struck me as like insanely kind of either pretentious or ridiculous, like writing her a letter before we started shooting.
0: What did you write to her in the letter?
4: I just said, you know, we were up at Tanglewood and we were about to start shooting the whole thing. I just felt, you know, it's just such a huge responsibility to play Someone tell the story of their life, you know. I just said, Yeah, <laughs> I hope this is all right. I hope you don't mind. I hope, you know, you're okay with it and that, you know, feel free to give me a nudge, you know, if it feels like I'm getting it wrong. And then I don't know. I wrote it in a book. I didn't send it anywhere, but I just wrote it down and sort of put it out there.
0: That's Carrie Mulligan. She stars in Maestro, currently streaming on Netflix. Thank you so much for speaking with us
4: today. Thank you so much.
0: to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Whether you're a diehard bookworm or just hoping to read more in 2024, there are great books ahead. That's according to Andrew Limbong who hosts NPR's Book of the Day podcast. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Lena. So, 2024 sounds like you're pretty hopeful for some books on the horizon. Um, what What makes you hopeful?
12: So, I just had like a little kid. Aw. So I've been paying more attention to kids' books these days, more so than I usually would. Okay. There's this new one coming out. It's called A uh, Forever and Always. It's by uh, Brittany J. Thurman, uh, illustrated by Shamar Knight Justice. And it's about this little girl whose dad is an EMT, and so she mm. spends a whole book worrying about him, waiting for him to come home from work. And mm. so she makes a gift for him to take her mind off of like her anxiety. I mean, it's not labeled as such, but that's what she's going through. And the illustrations are beautiful. And, and I think it's just like a really warm and fantastic book that kind of doesn't shy away from how love and worry sort of go hand in hand together, but it does so in in a very like kind and caring way that I think kids will love.
0: Okay, okay. Other than kids books, any other themes that jump out for next year in books?
12: Yeah, I was just looking at what's coming up ahead, especially in the first couple months. And there are a couple like really old established pros taking huge swings, right? Just like going for the fences. The one I'm thinking of right now is uh, James by Percival Everett. He's a longtime writer. He's got dozens of books under his belt. Uh, Listeners might have just seen um, this movie called American Fiction, uh, which is based off of one of his books. He's coming out with a retelling of Huckleberry Finn from the point of view of Jim, the slave who befriends Huck Finn along the way, and it's it's more than a straight retelling. I won't I won't spoil too much about it, but it's definitely not just like an alternate side view. There's more to it than that. It's also extremely funny. Another one is by Alexis Wright. She's not super well known here. Uh, she's a pretty established Aboriginal writer in Australia. Uh, her new book, Praiseworthy, is this huge honker of a novel, <laughs> okay. um, and it's about uh, this uh, crazed, like, visionary guy who can kind of see the world ending and tries to sort of stop it. And then he has to deal with like his family trying to deal with him and all that. It's a big, um, like, more than a novel.
2: Okay,
0: it's good.
12: Fle- it's good writing flexing. If you want to just, you know, read somebody pop off for like a couple pages, like as a writer, I definitely pick this up.
0: Is there maybe a certain genre or category, if we can go that direction, that you're most excited about?
12: Yeah. I mean, you know, I I really like reporters going deep on something. There's there's two books that sort of fit that category. One is called American Girls by Jessica Roy. She's a journalist who is telling the story about these two sisters from Arkansas. One of them ended up becoming involved with a guy in ISIS, and then she takes her kids and goes to Syria to go Mm. join him. And then her sister has to be like
0: her sister in in the U.S. Her
12: sister in the U.S. then has to go and find her and try to get her back. And then there's another book by Bianca Bosker called Get the Picture. She's known for her book Cork Dork, which, which is like it was an inside look at wine culture and wine snobs and wine nerds. And so this book is about that but art. She spends a lot of time with, like, gallerists and artists and clout chasers and hangers-on yeah. and everyone sort of involved in that scene to really get a picture of how, ha ha, ha picture of how this scene works. <laughs> I get it. Yeah.
0: I get it. I get it. Thank you, Andrew Limbong, culture reporter, host of NPR's Book of the Day podcast. Happy reading to you and to all of us.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah cool. Thank you. <laughs>
0: is NPR News
6: this is 90.9 WBUR I'm Sharon Brody in Boston the MBTA is speeding up the removal of slow zones the Boston Globe reports that the T ended 43 speed restrictions this month that's the highest number of slow zone eliminations in a month since March when the T slowed trains system-wide the percentage of subway tracks where trains have to slow down is now below 20% for the first time since March 16% of tracks have slow zones most of those are on the red line Two New York City men have been arrested on visa fraud charges. The U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts says the two suspects staged armed robberies of at least four convenience and liquor stores in Massachusetts. In the alleged scheme on visa applications, store clerks claimed they were victims of violent crimes and claimed they helped law enforcement with the investigation, and that boosted their chances of getting their applications approved. It's 44 degrees in Boston, some showers today, and temperatures in the mid-40s.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash meals and comedian Jimmy Tingle in Humor and Hope for the Holidays, Comedy and Politics, December 29th through New Year's Eve, Wimberley Theater, JimmyTingle.com. I'm Robin
6: Young. The Boys in the Boat is a new movie about young Americans who take up rowing and defy Hitler by
8: winning the gold at the Berlin Olympics.
16: They were really representing a set of values that we still cherish today, opposed to a set of values that we despise. Hear the
8: true story from the author of the book next time, here and now. Listen Monday at noon on 90.9 WBUR.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org.
0: This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Alina Seluch. And now it's time for sports. Looking back on a year, women running the show, college sports, are they still amateur? And a wild ride for the NFL. We're talking to Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media. He joins us now. Good morning.
5: Good morning. How are you? Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year. Okay, let's begin with women in sports. Lots of big moments this year. The Women's World Cup in soccer. Brittany Greiner returned to the basketball court after a long detention in Russia. A stellar March Madness tournament I could keep going on. It's not like these stories don't happen in previous years, right? But are we, I don't know, maybe paying more attention now?
5: Yeah, Alina, I think we are paying more attention. And I think it's about time because... The stories have always been there. Two years ago, we had Serena Williams and her fantastic end of her career at the US Open, which was the story the very next year, this year, Coco Gauff wins the, the US Open for the first time. So it's not like we haven't had great stuff. I think the difference is, is that for so many years, we've had the men who run the world, who run the networks continuously tell us that women don't sell, they're not stars, and we have no reason to watch, and this year, just time after time after time, the women had proven that they were the stars. They were the ones to watch. And whether it was Coco Goff, whether it was Simone Biles this year, whether it was the Iowa and LSU with Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark, or even in defeat, the women's soccer team in the, in the World Cup, not meddling, but they were still the story. But my hope is, is that we'll continue to listen and recognize that the viewer wants to see greatness. And the greatness this year The women were leading it and that's what we want to watch and that's why we watch and they gave us everything we could have hoped for in 2023
0: okay let's switch gears uh to another huge story um the landscape of college sports really changed dramatically this year student athletes uh became able to sign huge sponsorship deals the big college conferences are becoming even bigger how does all of this fit with the long understanding we have of college sports as amateur
5: Oh, it's over. To the our long national nightmare of of lying to ourselves that that college sports isn't a multi-billion-dollar industry. It's all gone. The only difference is that the players are engaging now. That the players have a chance. Whether it's the Caitlin Clark's and the Angel Reese's, or whether it's Arch Manning in Texas, that the athletes are going to share in this multi billion dollar pie. We see the destruction of the NCAA in terms of the college football landscape. And the one good thing out of all of this is that the players are the they are the show, they're they are why we're watching and I think that they deserve compensation and they're getting it. Okay,
0: now to the biggest sports league in America. The NFL had a really roller coaster year. It began with a player, Damar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills, suffering cardiac arrest during a game in January. Seems like so long ago, it sparked a whole conversation about what we ask of players, the physical risks that they take for, you know, our entertainment. But, you know, here we are at the end of the same year. America still cannot get enough of the NFL, what does that tell us about the league's uh, enduring popularity?
5: Yeah, it tells us that we've made our deal. This is the most popular sport, whether it's gambling, whether it's what we see on the field. The NFL is expecting revenues over the next decade to be at $25 billion or somewhere, some ridiculous number. But let's not forget that a player's heart actually stopped on the field and that he was resuscitated. And there was an, a- an ambulance on the field. And we all watched this on Monday Night Football. And... As much as we talk about the ratings and we talk about the excitement and the Super Bowl and the rest of it, the dangers of the sport cannot be diminished, even though we begin the season with DeMar Hamlin and then people are talking about Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift.
0: It's a whole other other (laughs) parallel universe we live in. Um, Before we let you go, Howard, um, is there anything else, another story, another theme that caught your attention this year in in sports?
5: Yeah, I think the biggest thing that caught my eye was the number of climate protests this year. Uh, Organizations like Climate Defiance held uh, protests, whether it was the, the British Open in golf, whether it was Wimbledon three times, whether it was the U.S. Open in tennis, whether it was baseball, Uh, This year, shutting down, having to delay games because of the Canadian wildfires. The environment is a real thing. And I think that climate activists are recognizing that sports is the place that has the eyeballs. And this is the place where people may actually be forced to pay attention to the real issues when it comes to the climate.
0: That's Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media. Thanks, as always. Thank you. Simon Sabag Montefiore's book, The World, investigates the history of humanity through families, the Caesars and Borgias, the Kims and Tudors, Roosevelt's and the House of Saud. The book spans a thousand pages of plagues, pandemics, and crimes against humanity, along with staggering stories of survival and achievement. And you can read it all while listening to a playlist compiled by the
22: author.
4: Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a
0: man of
23: wealth
0: more than 400 songs, from The Rolling Stones, Bob Marley, Bob Dylan, Aretha Franklin, The Commodores, and many more. Earlier this year, NPR's Scott Simon spoke with author and historian Simon Sebag montefiore about his book and his playlist.
14: I gather you believe Sympathy for the Devil is the best song about history.
13: I put it as my number one. The brilliant way it's written, the trope of an unknown narrator that we, whom we discover, whose identity is revealed, and who plays a role in many of the most terrible atrocities of the 20th century. I think it's one of the best-written rock songs of all time.
23: a When the and the
14: What does this playlist provide for our perspective on
13: history? Well, part of the fun thing about writing a family history is to get a feel of the way people lived which is not just Empires Rising and Falling, battles and pandemics, but also how they ate, how they dressed, and of course, what kind of music they listened to. And so I thought, God, it'd be really fun to have a playlist of all the great history songs, which I define as history song is either about a historical character or characters, or it's a song Mm -hmm. that becomes the theme of a historical event.
5: Seven Feet. More music.
14: Nina Simone's version of Strange Fruit.
5: Barren strange fruit. Blood on the leaves. And blood at the roots. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze.
14: What do we hear in this song?
13: I mean, this is a song, this is a terrifying, terrible, atrocious narrative of a lynching in the South. It tells part of the story of America, of the Jim Crow years of America. And slavery is a big part of this world history. Um, Atlantic slavery, but also other slave trades in in East Africa, Trans-Saharan, and the Mediterranean Black Sea slave trade as well. You know, the great thing about writing a family history of the world is that you can cover these things in special ways. So some of the families, as you mentioned, are royal families, political families, families of power, but some are enslaved families too.
5: Then the sudden smell of burning flesh
14: i feel the need to cite the author of the song abel Mirapole. you know that story
13: yeah i mean he's a he he was yeah. jewish
14: uh abel Mirapole adopted michael and robbie Mirapole, who had been born to julius nethel rosenberg
13: amazing amazing
14: in another direction
8: entirely
13: I
14: What scholarly contribution does or do Herman's Hermits make?
13: Some of these songs are extremely dark and almost unbearable, like strange fruit. And some are just outrageous fun. I mean, you've got to be ready for all sorts of changes of tone. You know, one of the things that's fun about this is not just to have songs that mention historical characters. I mean, one of my favorites is The Stranglers, No More Heroes. Whatever
21: to He got an ice pick that made his news burn.
13: That's another wonderful one, too. And there are songs about serious things.
2: Mm-hmm.
13: You know, the beautiful song, Iranian song from today.
2: There are songs
13: from Ukraine, for example.
2: There are
13: songs from the Soviet Union in World War
2: II.
13: so i hope that one finds as much variety here as one does in the book as one does in world history
2: was it third of june another sleepy dusty delta day
14: from following your book tour i understand you were at the Tallahatchie bridge
13: i was at the Tallahatchie bridge Bobby Gentry is in, the, is in the list, of course. Of course, I stopped the car and just had a moment.
10: And Mama hollered at the back door, Y'all remember to wipe your feet?
2: And then she said, I got some news this
16: morning from Choctaw Ridge. Today, Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge. And
13: I was in Graceland, too. And I think Elvis is one of those characters. For about 50 years, the great pop stars were like, and I'm slightly exaggerating here, but not completely, I think, were like Mm -hmm. the Grand Dukes, the Cardinals, maybe the great artists of bygone eras. Some of them are essential for a world history. So we've got Frank Sinatra, we've got Bowie, we've got Elvis, of course. And the mm-hmm. Stones and the Beatles are all really part of the development of, of commerce, of capitalism, of a single American culture, of American domination of world culture. Frank Sinatra is a classic example. He sung at the 1946 summit meeting of the mafia who were in the book, Lucky Luciano and Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky. He was friends with Jack Kennedy. He introduced Kennedy to Marilyn Monroe and Judith Exner.
14: And Marilyn Monroe's version of Happy Birthday
13: Mr. President is also on the playlist. Happy birthday to you. Absolutely. I mean, she's in the book. Her singing that song is the sort of climax of Camelot in many ways. And the Kennedys are a big part of this story. And in case one thinks dynasties are over, in most of the rest of the world, for all sorts of reasons, people are returning to dynasties, to clans, families of different sorts
14: there's a marcos back in power in the philippines
13: there's a marcos back in power there was a kenyatta back in power and then there are proper monarchies which are riding high look at the saudi monarchy for example and then there are republic monarchies like the kims of north korea the assads and many many others who are um, trying to create actual hereditary dynasties like monarchies people often ask me Who's the most powerful family in the world? And of course, the answer has to be the Kim family of North Korea, because they have the ultimate heirloom, a nuclear arsenal.
14: You're right, in the world, history shows that humans have a a limitless ability to destroy and an ingenious ability to recover. So the last song I want to ask you about is, of course, by a Chicagoan, Sam Cooke. Don't know much about, about history. history Don't know much biology What don't wisdom don't from history or about history is in this song?
13: The reason why I have it in the playlist is not just that it mentions history and it is the most beautiful song, it's also optimistic about human nature.
2: If you love me too, what a
13: wonderful world this would be And there's something else. I don't know much about history you may find this surprising for someone who's just written... A thousand um,
14: pages, yes, right.
13: We often revere history as propulsive, as almost sacred in its authority. And in fact, history doesn't matter that much. What really matters is how people want to live now. And that's the difference between Ukraine, for example, and President Putin. President Putin is living in the age of Catherine the Great and Prince Potemkin and Nicholas I, and the Ukrainians want to live now in freedom. And that's the theme of that beautiful song by Sam Cooke.
14: Simon Sebag Montefiore, his new book, The World, The Family History of Humanity, accompanied by a playlist on Spotify. Thanks so much for being with us.
13: Always lovely to talk to you. Don't know much about Don't
2: know what a slide is for But I do know what it was
6: this is
0: Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Alina selo Scott Simon will be back next week. Have a wonderful, wonderful New Year
2: 2024. I can win your love
0: for
14: me Don't know
2: much about history Don't know much biology don't know much about a science book, don't know much about the French I took, but I do know that I love, I love you, and I know that if you love me too, for the wonderful world this would be.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. Join us at City Space this coming Thursday. Dr. Pooja Lakshman discusses her new book that challenges the industrial wellness complex and offers tips for genuine self-care. That's Thursday, January 4th. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. It's 44 degrees in Boston, some showers around, temperatures in the mid-40s, lows in the low 30s tonight, a sunny Sunday, tomorrow's high around 40. For New Year's Eve, clouds, lows in the mid-20s, New Year's Day, sunshine high around 40.
23: The conflict between Israel and Hamas. Deep division in Congress and a looming election. Devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times, and they require serious journalism. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. So make your year-end contribution by midnight tomorrow at WBUR.org, or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you.